The homily this morning is quite simple. I will exhort you with the words of Jesus to strive to enter by the narrow door. And I will urge you, as a part of that striving, to make this service of worship a priority. That's the sermon. Let's flesh it out. The gospel passage begins with Luke reminding us that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem as the crowd gathers around him. But the crowd, as we know, is gathering around him because they have one idea of what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem, and he has another. They think he is going there to be enthroned on an earthly throne. He knows he is going there to be lifted up on a cross. And along the way, this crowd of people who've jumped on the Jesus bandwagon look around and see the number of them and someone asks a question, Lord, will only a few be saved? And this is not a random question, this is a live issue. If you consult the rabbis, you will find one who says, all Israel will have a share in the world to come. Many will be saved. Being an Israelite descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is your ticket in. But another rabbi was more troubling. He said, the Most High made this world for the sake of many, but the world to come for the sake of only a few. And again, he said, there are more who perish than those who will be saved. Who's right? That's the question that is put to Jesus. As the crowd grows around him, they think and hope they know the answer. Many will be saved. Just being part of this group means they're in. Jesus, as usual, doesn't quite answer the question. He redirects their thoughts. He, in essence, says, the question is not... How many will be saved? The question is, will you be saved? And so he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. He doesn't answer whether many will be saved, but he does say many will not be. And Jesus presents this terrifying vision of the day of salvation when many are left outside. He says, when once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then in reply he will say, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. He is speaking to the crowd as they follow him. He is saying, mere 
association with me is not enough. Yes, I eat and drink with you. That's not enough. It's not enough to say, yes, I'm on team Jesus. I'm a fan. That attitude will get you as far as Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It will not get you to the cross. The terrifying vision continues. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrown out. They were relying on this, that they were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they had the words of the prophets in their book. And Jesus says, beware, they may be in and you out. The warning comes to you as well. If you rely on being in a Christian family, being part of a church, being in some way associated with Jesus, thinking well of him, this is not enough. But primarily at this moment, Jesus is speaking to his own people, Israel, who rely on their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in fact, this partial hardening of his people, Israel, will result in the coming in of the Gentiles, and he tells them that. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The kingdom will be opened up to everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And here we are, in a land no one in Jesus' time had even heard of, brought in from north and south, east and west. But if even Jesus' own people could be rejected because they did not follow him, let us take heed lest we also fall. And so Jesus gives this exhortation, strive to enter by the narrow door. And when we speak of the narrow door, we are not speaking primarily of a list of narrow rules that you must follow. But we are speaking of Christ himself, who is the narrow door, and you can enter into the kingdom through no one else. But understand, he is, in part, a narrow door because they must enter through Christ, not as they imagine him not as the conquering hero who enters Jerusalem in triumph and throws off the Roman oppressor and restores Israel to its rightful place in the world and rules from an earthly Jerusalem. 
No. Nor is the narrow door Christ as we perhaps imagine him. Someone who is there when you need him for your purposes, safely out of the way when you don't. This is the Christ who will enter Jerusalem in triumph only to be betrayed and condemned and put to death on a cross. And when that happens, this crowd that is following him will disappear. This is not the Christ they want. They want the popular Christ, the one that everybody loves. They want the easy Christ. They want to be on the winning team. But Christ is the one prophesied in our Old Testament passage, the cornerstone of a new temple, a stone that we know from Isaiah 8, the builders will reject. Only those who entrust themselves to this rejected one will be saved. And to do this, you must share in his rejection. To enter by the narrow door, you must embrace the Christ who is despised and rejected, the Christ who suffers and dies. The paradox of the narrow door is that you won't fit through it without a cross on your back. If you want to enter by the narrow door, Jesus tells you, take up your cross and follow me. There is no other way. You must turn your back on this world and all that it offers. You must set your face like flint toward the heavenly Jerusalem, even though suffering and death may lie between. You must abandon your reliance on money and personal strength and human government and whatever else gives you a false and temporary security in this world. You must give up your desire for the approval of others and instead seek to take every thought captive that it might be in submission to Christ. This door is narrow indeed. But beloved, everyone who enters by it will be saved. Do not fear. Only strive, he says, to enter by the narrow door. Strive. It's not enough to just say, I'm in the Jesus crowd. If you do not seek to be a cross-bearing follower of Jesus. Jesus calls us to strive like an athlete straining forward toward the high calling that God gives us in him. Jesus is calling us to be like Jacob on his way back into the promised land. You remember the story that Jacob meets a man and he wrestles with the man all night. And the man touches Jacob's hip socket so that the leg is put out of joint, but still Jacob wrestles. And the man says, let me go for day has broken. But Jacob somehow understands that this is no ordinary man, this man is somehow God himself and he is wrestling with him. And he says, I will not let you go 
unless you bless me. He's not asking for wealth or fame or strength or power. He's asking that God should be his God and his inheritance. And so the Lord blesses him and the Lord gives Jacob a new name, Israel, which means he strives with God. That is the name to live up to. Jacob walks off limping because of his hip, but blessed by God. And this is more than a fair trade. So it will be with us when we take up the cross. We will have suffering in this life, but eternal blessedness in the life that is to come. Strive, children of God, to take advantage of this offer. Wrestle with him for it. You have been called from north and south, from east and west, to become part of the Israel of God. Therefore, lean into that name, Israel. Strive with God. Wrestle with him in prayer. Tell him that you will not let him go until he blesses you with the blessing of Christ himself and of his spirit. Strive to lay hold of every spiritual blessing that has been secured for you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Pray and fast that you may seek the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ and the eyes of Christ and the hands of Christ and everything that belongs to the spirit of Christ. Keep going back to your Father again and again. He gives good gifts to those who ask. Now, children of God, beware the enemy of your soul who wants to twist these words. If he can't get you to ignore these words completely, then corrupting them is his second trick. He, your enemy, would love to see you striving in such a way that you become more and more frantic, desperate to earn your salvation, terrified that you're not doing enough. Or if you can't get that, then he would love to see you striving in such a way that you become proud of your efforts and you look down at those who don't work as hard. They might not enter, you will. Away with such false teaching. The striving we are talking about will not lead you to confidence in your own efforts, nor will it lead you to fear that your efforts are not good enough. The striving we're talking about will lead you to a confidence in the work of Christ and a certainty that he has done everything that you need. The striving we are talking about is a striving according to faith. And so it is a striving to reject your own efforts and to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the paradox 
that we are striving to be at rest. We are striving to be like Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus because she knew that in that moment nothing was more important. We are striving to hear the words of God in the psalm that we read responsively in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart. In the second to last verse of that psalm, it says, be still then and know that I am God. Or as another translation has it, cease striving and know that I am God. We are striving to cease striving. In the midst of a world that causes us to strive with worry and to exercise our futile efforts to gain control over things that are out of control. But God, the psalm says, must be our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be moved and though the mountains be toppled into the depths of the sea. Why won't we fear? Because, the psalm says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. If only we can have him, the Lord of hosts, is with us. Strive to lay hold of him. Why won't we fear? Because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be overthrown. We will not fear because even though the whole world is being shaken, God has a peaceful city that is untroubled by the chaos of this present world. That city exists right now, and we are citizens of it. And the psalmist says God shall help her at break of day. So wrestle with him like Jacob till the break of day. Because on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that will last forever. O oh, beloved children of God, what if we could somehow catch a glimpse of that city right now? What if we could take a tour of it for just an hour or two? and see the glory that awaits us. Wouldn't that fill us with joy and give us amazing strength for the task ahead? Wouldn't it renew our desire for heavenly things and fill us with determination to seek the things that are above? If you could tour that city, would you let anything come between you and the opportunity? You know where I'm going with this, right? I hope the next sentence isn't a surprise. You are there in that city right now. 
This is our New Testament passage. In this worship service, for that's what the book of Hebrews is talking about, the gathering of the saints together in worship. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews is written to converted Jews who are tempted to go back to their old worship, to the sacrifices and to the temple and to the outward glory. And the author tells them all those things were just copies of heavenly realities. But when we assemble here as Christians to worship God, we are brought up into the real thing. Your eyes cannot see this because your eyes aren't strong enough yet. Not because it's so unreal that it's invisible, but because it's too real. It's too solid. Someday we'll see it. But now, by faith, we lay hold of this truth. By faith, we say, right now, I am on God's holy mountain in his everlasting city, the new Jerusalem. You have come to this place, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What does our Eucharist service say? Therefore, we praise you joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. This is not flowery language that we use to sound impressive. This is literal truth. Right now, you are surrounded by more angels than you can count. They fill this building or if you want to put it another way, you are no longer in this building. You are in heavenly places where the angels forever sing their song of praise. Either way, you and they are singing together. And you and they are singing with all other believers throughout the world and with those who have gone before you into heaven to await the resurrection of their bodies. This is the communion of the saints, which we confess. See to it, brothers and sisters, that you do not neglect so great a salvation. Strive to be here, to know that you are in the presence of God and of his holy angels and the apostles and martyrs and saints and all God's people. This is how striving to enter by the narrow door must begin. And this is where the strength to strive is given. Because you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For what did the blood of Abel say? It cried out against his brother Cain. It cried out for justice. It cried out for vengeance. But the blood of Christ 
which you will in a moment drink, cries out for forgiveness, and it confers everlasting life. Come and eat his flesh and drink his blood, and you will have life in you and the strength to strive as Christ calls you to strive, and not in your own flesh. See to it, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. In this service, you have come to a place where God speaks to you. He is speaking to you now. This is a bold statement, and I would not dare make it if Scripture did not say it first. But even here in Hebrews, in the next chapter, the author will say, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. That's my task here. Not to do a stand-up routine, not to give you a bunch of personal anecdotes, not to give you a TED talk. I've been entrusted with the word of God to speak to you. In individualist America, we think of the word as something we read and interact with on our own. Throughout this country, preachers are telling their congregations, the word of God is really important. So go home and read it. But I am saying to you, the word of God is really important. So listen up. It's happening right now. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go home and read the scriptures. Please do. But the word is more than something you look at in private. The word of God that will save you is a powerful event that takes place when the people of God are gathered together as one body to hear the word proclaimed by one to whom that word has been entrusted. It's in that context, the context of preaching the word, that the book of Hebrews tells you the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's in this context that Paul tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, because in so doing you will save both yourself and those who hear you. If you want the strength to strive, come to hear the word. Come to worship in the company of angels. Come to feed upon Christ at his altar. If you wish to enter by the narrow door, then strive to hear this word and to come again in a week expecting that you will hear the voice of God, knowing that you will be in God's presence and that the body and blood of Christ will nourish you to everlasting life. The book of Hebrews concludes with this benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.